kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Today we will complete our review of the role of the apostles in the book of Acts to test the legitimacy of the historic title, Acts of the Apostles. Our review thus far has carried us from chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 11. We saw that the apostles are the witnesses to the identity and glory of Christ to Israel and all nations, and they are the spokesmen of his authority and rule on earth. To this end, they were both prepared by his personal training and equipped with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit who was their helper. It was the reception of the helper on the day of Pentecost that formally and actually inaugurated the reign of Christ over the earth. Through the apostles, the Christ, recognized as victorious and officially enthroned in heaven, was able to speak his teachings and commandments to all who call on his name on earth, and thereby to accomplish in them full redemption, the forgiveness of their sins, their transformation into his own image in character and conduct, the abolition of enmity, and the promotion of love and unity between them as a community, and the increase of their accurate knowledge of the Father. Only those who had learned from Jesus directly, been called and equipped by him, believed in him and were loyal to him in adversity, and had witnessed with their own eyes his majesty, especially in his bodily resurrection from the dead, were qualified to serve in this position. That totaled to be the twelve once Matthias had been selected as the replacement of Judas and Paul. In the early years of Acts, we saw that the apostles were at first the only teachers of the church, and only the apostles worked miracles. The miracles were God's attestation to them, even as he had attested Christ in the same way, according to Acts 2 and 22. So it was only reasonable that God would confine miraculous power to the apostles until their position in the community of believers and in the world was clearly established. When the time came for the gifts of the Spirit, a number of miraculous abilities designed as signs and supports to the work and growth of the body of Christ— in the infant stages of apostolic revelation, to be disseminated to the ever-expanding great congregation of disciples beginning in Jerusalem and then throughout all Judea and then into Samaria and finally among the Gentiles, it was the role of the apostles to distribute the gifts according to the will of the Spirit. The apostles would pray and seek the Spirit's direction Then they would publicly lay hands on those who the Spirit had chosen to receive a gift, and only after this the Spirit would impart the gifts. However, when we reach the end of Acts chapter 9, the apostles have confined their work of witnessing for Christ, teaching his commandments, and distributing his gifts to the Jews and the Samaritans, and they have continuously returned to Jerusalem rather than fulfilling Jesus' charge to them and going into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, 15. In Acts 8, God had arranged for the conversion of a Gentile on a deserted road, and he sent the man along his way with the promise that the kingdom would shortly follow after and reach him in his homeland. 
However, this was unknown to the apostles, even as the work of Christ in preparing, converting, calling, and equipping Saul of Tarsus to become a Christian, and the apostle Paul was unknown to them until he came to Jerusalem three years after becoming a disciple. So in Acts 10 and 11, it was necessary for God to alert the twelve that it was time for the next stage to begin, and that it would not be working the way that they and the other Hebrew Jews in Jerusalem expected. By baptizing a house of Gentiles in the Holy Spirit and empowering them to speak in tongues, Christ showed Peter that God was no respecter of persons, and the kingdom would consist of men and women from among the Jews and the Gentiles brought together to make one new body. Peter accepted this even to the point that he baptized the Gentiles, fellowshiped with them, and defended the legitimacy of this before his brethren in Jerusalem when he was challenged. However, by the end of Acts 11, we find that Peter, John, and James, the brother of Jesus, who was an elder in Jerusalem, had reached the personal conclusion that they should not shift their ministry to the Jews. They should leave the Gentile evangelism to the Apostle Paul. And Paul described the discussion in Galatians 2, verses 7 through 9. He says, When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace of God had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, the reference to the gospel for the circumcised being committed to Peter was not theological, but rather historical. It is simply a reference to the Jerusalem ministry recorded in the first five chapters of Acts in which Peter took the leading role and his audience was consistently Jewish. But the conclusion that Paul should go to the Gentiles and the twelve to the circumcised was not a spiritual decision. It was a manifestation of their lingering, albeit diminishing, misapprehension regarding the nature of Gentile inclusion in the kingdom. The Great Commission was not given to Paul only. It was first and primarily given to the twelve. Thus, God continued to work to bring them to a greater understanding and actualization of their mission. This time, it required such a severe lesson that it involved the death of one of the twelve, the first apostolic martyr recorded in Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' inner circle, who was privy to some of the most intimate and remarkable aspects of Jesus' ministry, was killed by Herod. Certainly, Peter and John must have recoiled at the thought that one of the only eyewitnesses to those most sacred moments other than themselves had died without being able to spread his testimonies beyond Jerusalem or to commit them to writing. Then Peter himself was arrested and sentenced to death. An angel miraculously released him from prison, but he realized from James's experience that there was no guarantee he would go on living. So he fled Jerusalem and spent some years in hiding. Well, during his travels, Peter visited the church in Antioch, 
and he saw the fellowship between the Jews and the Gentiles there. Evidently, he was assisting in the ministry of the church and coming to understand the beauty of the relationship God had created for the Jews and the nations as one in Christ. Of course, none of that's mentioned in Acts, but Paul reports it in Galatians 2. And Paul goes on to say that while Peter was with them, he was momentarily shaken from what he had learned by a message of concern from James, challenging the doctrine of justification by faith as a gateway to antinomianism. Paul charges that Peter and several of the other Jewish brethren became hypocrites, which indicates that they were not so much dissuaded from the things they had seen and heard and learned as they were pressured by the politics of the situation to turn their backs on what they knew. But Paul rebuked Peter, and immediately he repented. At this point, it seems that Peter returned to Jerusalem. He is there with the other apostles when the council meets in Acts 15 to deal with the problem of the Judaizer doctrine. And by this stage, Peter, speaking for all of the twelve, boldly declares, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we the Jews shall be saved in the same manner as they, the Gentiles, Acts 15 and verse 11, namely, by loyalty to the Messiah and that alone. With this realization, Peter informs that the apostles have come to realize the full implications of their duty given by Jesus. Their mission is not to the Jews only, but to every creature of all nations in all the world, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I suggest that at this point, the apostles depart Jerusalem and begin in earnest their global work. Of course, Luke does not tell us this for certain. From this point forward, Peter, John, and the rest of the twelve are never mentioned by name again in the book of Acts. All of Luke's attention is focused on Paul, and even beyond Acts, most of what we have in New Covenant Scripture comes from the pen of Paul. Of the twelve, only Matthew, Peter, and John contributed anything by name. It is at this point that we encounter not only the greatest challenge to the theory that the apostles should be regarded as the heroes or even the main characters of Acts, but also a number of questions that are challenging on their own rights. What happened to all the other apostles? What did they do? Why did Christ spend so much time training them? And why did he give them so many wonderful gifts only to have them labor in obscurity and die without leaving any permanent teachings for the world? Why was Paul alone given a substantial biography and account of his ministry in the scripture record? I believe that there are very good and reasonable answers to these questions that highlight rather than diminish the role of the apostles in Acts. First, while Luke does not further elaborate on the ministries of the apostles, tradition is consistent that after Acts 15, they did not linger in Jerusalem or limit their focus to the Jews. Andrew preached to the barbarians around the coast of the Black Sea and to the Scythians and possibly even as far as Russia and Scotland. Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, preached in Parthia, which is in modern Iran, Lycaonia, which is a part of modern Turkey, where Paul also labored, Armenia, and into Central Asia. Matthew preached in Ethiopia and Arabia, and we trust that he found the eunuch there 
and completed his training in Christian discipleship and gave him a congregation with which to worship and serve. James, the son of Alphaeus, labored in Spain, Britain, and Ireland. John worked in Asia Minor, in what is now Turkey. Matthias preached in Cappadocia, which is in the central part of modern Turkey. Philip preached in Phrygia. Simon the Zealot began his work in Egypt, traveled throughout North Africa, and ended in the British Isles. Thaddeus preached in Syria, and Thomas traveled throughout the Parthian Empire, bringing the gospel all the way to the Hindus and Buddhists of western India. Their traditional records of their works, and while these seem to have been corrupted with mythological and fanciful accounts, there are some traditions that may reasonably be accepted because they're in perfect keeping with what we know about the work of apostles from the example of Paul himself. To that, it is reasonable that Paul should receive the major focus in Scripture, because first, he was by his own testimonies more abundant in his labors than any other apostle, according to 1 Corinthians 15.10 and 2 Corinthians 11.23. In other words, he had the fullest experience of the apostolic mission of any of his brothers among the twelve. The second reason was that Luke the historian, who gave us Acts, was a student and traveling companion of Paul. Although he knew the others, he was much more acquainted, and at times even an eyewitness, to the experiences of Paul. But what we see in Paul, we can reasonably assume, was the work and experience of others, at least basically, including those others who did not write books. In fact, while they did not write books themselves, the works we may deduce that they performed throughout the world played an integral role in the reception and authority of the writings that their brother apostles and prophets did produce when that time came. Consider, for example, the work of Thomas. As we have stated, Luke says nothing of his labors in India, but historical tradition is quite strong that he was there. What would he have done, and what was its effect? In the centuries before the birth of Christ, many Jews had settled in the communities along the southwestern Malabar coast of India in what is now called Kerala. When Thomas came to this place, he would have gone to the Jews first to preach in their synagogues and to reason with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, "'This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ.'" just like Paul did in Thessalonica, according to Acts 17, 2-3. Very likely, he was able to convince some of those who heard him to believe in Jesus as the Christ, and he would have baptized them so their sins would be forgiven, just like Jesus commanded in Mark 16, 16. But at this point, it's also likely that the Jews who did not believe would begin to turn against Thomas, and he would have been driven out of the synagogues to preach to the Gentiles of the area. In India, there may have been some pagans who had come to know the true God by the Jews who had lived among them for so long, just like there were in parts of the Roman Empire. But there would also be Hindus who had been in that land for nearly 1,500 years, and Buddhists, which had originated with the teachings of the Nepalese prince Siddhartha Gautama nearly 600 years before Jesus was born. As Thomas preached Jesus to these people, of course, he would also work miracles. Jesus had told the apostles that if they believed in him, he would work with them and confirm their word through accompanying signs, Mark 16, 19-20. And in verses 17 and 18, 
he described what those signs would be. In my name, you will cast out demons. You will speak with new tongues. You will take up serpents. And if you drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt you. You will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. We may reasonably conclude that Thomas did all of these things as he preached in India, perhaps in a gathering of Jews who were skeptically deriding his claims. He, though an uneducated sojourner from Palestine, suddenly began to praise God fluently in the Hindi language, like the apostles in Acts 2 and 4. Perhaps while preaching one day, he was bitten by a cobra, but he did not die, as was normally the case when one was bitten by a cobra. He just shook it off and went back to preaching, like Paul on the island of Malta, according to Acts 28 and verse 3. Outside the villages were the communities of lepers from the lowest caste of Indian society, the untouchables. But Thomas would go out among them, and he would lay hands on them. He would touch the untouchables in the name of Jesus, and they would recover. Their skin would become as pure and whole as a newborn baby, and they would come into the villages to live among their families. The Indian pagans had seen men before who claimed to work miracles. The gurus and the Brahmin priests would lie on beds of nails and walk across hot coals and They seemed to be able to direct snakes to dance for them, and at the time, those things seemed impressive. And like the Samaritans before Simon, they would say, these men are the great power of God. But now they have seen true miracles, and they would turn from their vain idols to serve the living God. Likely even some of the pagan priests and religious teachers would do the same. They would believe and be baptized— and Thomas would organize them into congregations of Christ. He would teach them about Jesus. But he didn't need any writings to do this. He had been present with Jesus for three and a half years, and the Holy Spirit was in him to give him a perfect recollection of the things that he had seen and heard. He would tell them about Jesus' compassion and love toward those who suffered, and they would begin to see that the real God does not accept the caste system. The real God is no respecter of persons. He would tell them about the miracles that Jesus worked, that he could speak to a monsoon, and it would settle and subside immediately. They would say that the Brahmins told them there were many paths to God, and he would reply, No, friends, I asked Jesus once to show me the way to the Father, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. He would tell them about Jesus' death and resurrection. Perhaps they would say, what do you mean he came back from the dead? We've heard of reincarnation, but not of this resurrection. And Thomas would reply, I know, it's hard to believe. I didn't believe it myself until he let me touch the nail prints in his hands and put my own hand into his riven side. And then I said, oh, my Lord and my God, It really is you, because I could deny it no longer. In addition to the sayings of Jesus, he would teach them new truths as the Spirit revealed them to him. Like Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, 10-12, he would tell them about what happened on the day of Pentecost and about the early history of the church and how Jesus had blessed his people with triumph and growth even in the face of harsh and violent persecution. He would tell them about the great enemy of the cause, Saul of Tarsus, 
who had now been converted and become one of Christ's greatest champions. In time, he would lay hands on the Christians, according to Acts 8.18, and they would receive gifts from the Spirit. To one, the word of wisdom, to another, the word of knowledge, to another, faith, to another, gifts of healings, to another, working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, discerning of spirits, to another, different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues, 1 Corinthians 12, 4-11, and these gifts would further establish that God was among his people. Even when it came time for Thomas to move on to a new place and continue his work there. Now, we know that Thomas would have done these things because the Apostle Paul did this kind of work everywhere he went. We've seen it in the scriptures we've just referenced. And he called it laying the foundation of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11. And he said that all the apostles and prophets, even those who did not write Scripture, contributed to this foundation by the work and witness that they gave throughout the world, Ephesians 2 and 20. Later, when writings like the Galatian epistle or the epistle of James or the gospel of Matthew began to circulate and to be sent even as far as to these saints in India, they would receive them. And immediately they would recognize the names of men like Paul and the teachings, both those ascribed to Jesus and other apostles. And they would say, well, these are exactly the things Thomas taught us. These are the stories he told us. And here they are written down in such a concise and clear manner. And thus they would take those writings and they would lay them squarely on the solid foundation of the testimony and miracles and teaching and ministry which Thomas had laid among them. In this great work, all of the apostles completed the work of Christ in fully establishing his reign and rule and the community of his people in the world and settling forever the final authority and perfect deposit of his truth in the Christian scripture. Thus they did and still do sit on twelve thrones and judge among the twelve tribes of spiritual Israel. And Acts is a witness to this work, these acts of all the apostles. While their feature in Luke's great work is not what many would expect, it is certainly sufficient to justify the historic understanding that their role was central, not only in this book, but in the work of Christ, inaugurating and increasing his reign in this world. If we cannot see how this book may rightly be called the Acts of the Apostles, then we have failed to grasp a major part of the story Luke wants to tell. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless, and have a great week. 
From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.